We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we continue our discussion of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. A number of years ago, somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago, when my kids were still pretty small, I took them one day to the food court at the mall. And at the time, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, in the food court, they had a few of those little coin-operated rides that... You could put a quarter in or a dollar or something like that, and uh, it would be like a little pony, you know, that would rock back and forth or a little car that would go back and forth, and so kids like to play on those, especially little kids. At the time, my kids, in fact, they were preschool age. They were so young that they didn't even need me to put a coin in there uh, to get the thing going. They would just uh, crawl on it and play on it regardless of whether it was rolling or not. And so uh, for as long as I could, I delayed telling them that those rides could actually move uh, because we saved money and they had fun. So we were watching this, you know, I was watching them kind of play and crawl around on the horse and all this kind of stuff. And as they're doing it, this other kid walks up to me, maybe five or six years old, never seen him before in my life. And he just walks right up to me and he goes, hey, can you give me some money for the rides? like this tiny panhandler, you know, for recreational funds. And so I'm like, "Uh, you know, I don't really have a lot of money on me right now. And secondly, that seems like something you should ask your own parents for and not me because we've never met. And he just goes, huh. And he walks away. And so we continue to play and he comes back about five minutes later and he has like a, a fistful of money and he goes, my dad gave me money. Because my dad carries money. And then he walks over to the little rides like, you are clearly an inferior father, is what he's saying to me. My dad carries money. My dad has money. My dad fulfills my request for money. And I thought about that later, and I thought, okay, uh, why is it that his dad is willing to give him money when I'm not? Well, frankly, because his dad knows him. I've never met him. He has a relationship with his father so that the request for money is flowing out of a relationship with his dad. The petition is rooted in knowledge. It's rooted in connection. It's rooted in familiarity, in a relationship of father and child. The same type of principle ought to apply to our prayer life. That before we bring petitions to God, before we open up our prayers by asking God for what we want, what we think we need, what we think would make the world better, before any of that, we begin by talking about and cultivating the relationship that we have with God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he begins not by telling them, hey, list your requests and start there. Nor does he begin by saying, confess your sins and start there. Although those will both be part of the model of prayer we're going to see in the Lord's Prayer. But where Jesus begins is he says, I want you to understand, relationship precedes request. right? Knowing precedes asking. And so Jesus is going to begin the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 and 10, the first half almost, of the Lord's Prayer by saying, before you ask for what you need, acknowledge who God is and the relationship that you have with him. So acknowledge who God is before you ask for what you need. Acknowledge who God is before you ask for what you need. It's not that petitions are wrong. Jesus will encourage us to make petitions. It's that he says, I want to set the stage 
by acknowledging first who God is. Why? God is more concerned with our knowledge of him, our relationship with him, than he is with us getting everything we want or think we want or think we need. God is more concerned with knowing us than us trying to extract from him all the stuff we want. We're going to see the gods of the, the pagans that, God, that Jesus talks about. They were gods that people would approach just to get what they want and get what they need. And Jesus says, your God is not like that. He wants to know you. He wants to relate to you because he loves you and he cares about you. And he wants you to understand his will is better than your will. So all of that is rooted in relationship. If you remember last week in in the section immediately preceding the Lord's Prayer, we talked about how Jesus set the stage by telling us how not to pray. He begins by saying, don't do two things. One, don't make your prayers a performance. Make your prayers a manipulation, right? Don't make them a performance where you're doing them to impress other people. Also, don't make them a manipulation where you're just trying to dance and do all of these things, magic words, special rituals, lots of words, to get God's attention so you can get what you want. He says, instead, I'm going to show you how I want you to pray. And so he gives the Lord's Prayer. That's Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer, section by section. And the Lord's Prayer, it's not a what to pray. He says, pray in this way, like this. It is a how to pray. It's not special magical words that Jesus says you always must recite, although if you've got the Lord's Prayer memorized, that's fantastic. But he says, it's not that these are magical words. He says, these are the types of things I want you to pray for. This is the way I want you to pray. And so in that context, I think it's really significant, again, that Jesus begins not by saying, bring your petitions first, but instead we begin with relationship. We acknowledge who God is before we ask for what we need. So as we dive into this section, I think it's important for us to ask this question. Does your prayer life reflect that you want to know God deeply before you start making requests? Does your prayer life reflect that you want to have a close relationship with him, that that's more important to you than you getting what you need? If, if, if I'm honest, my prayer life doesn't always reflect that. A lot of times the concerns of my week, the concerns of my day, what I see coming ahead, those just dominate my thoughts. So I come to God first by saying, God, give me, do this, fix this, be this for me. And, and, and so the question is, does our prayer life reflect God wants to know you? He wants to have a relationship with you. Does your prayer life reflect a submission to God's will? Recognizing that God's will, as we just sang, is greater than our will. God's vision for the world is greater than my vision of how I think the world should be. So before I bring my petitions, I root my relationship with God in trust and submission. That's where Jesus is going to take us. Acknowledge who God is before you ask for what you need. A few verses down in Matthew 6, he'll say this way. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So Jesus here is not saying uh, don't don't, uh, worry at all or don't think at all about eating. He's not saying that people who follow God don't eat. We have to eat. He's not saying don't wear clothes. Please keep wearing clothes. He's not saying those are things you shouldn't think about at all. 
But what he is saying is that in our relationship to God, we focus first what? He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus draws a contrast. He says the pagans, they run after all these things. What does he mean? Well, if you think about like the pagan gods like Baal, or even uh, more recent uh, uh, manifestations of religion, where there might be a multitude of gods or a particular god that people come to and, and their primary relationship with that god is to extract from that god what they need. So think, for example, about Hinduism, very old religion, but they have many, many, many deities. They don't necessarily have a close personal relationship with those deities. They come to each one of them to get what they think they need. This deity will make the crops grow. This deity will give us children. This deity will make us healthy. Right, and Jesus says, that's not the way your heavenly father works. But instead, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You orient your life under his kingdom. You aim for your life to reflect his righteousness. So before we ask for what we need, we acknowledge who God is. So Jesus now tells us, when we pray, how do we acknowledge, how can we have this heart posture of acknowledging who he is? Follow with me in verse 9. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, we'll stop there. So Jesus says, first of all, when you pray, we relate to God first and foremost as our Father. So he starts and he says, pray in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven. Now, if you were one of Jesus' original listeners, this would have been a very significant and maybe even a little bit disturbing way to address God. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, God is referred to certainly as the father of Israel. He's referred to as the father of all humanity. But people don't pray to him as father. People don't address him as father when they pray. If you read through the prayers of the Old Testament, most of the time people address him either as Lord or as God or as Lord God or some combination of those. God is addressed as being up there, transcendent but not always near to me, enthroned in heaven, but not always a, a God that I can approach in a familial way and a familiar way, right? So Jesus says, first and foremost, I want you to address God as your father. How can that be? How can we now address God as father? Well, because of Jesus. Jesus came into our world, the, the fully God, fully man, to help us find our way to the Father, to chart a path for us to have a personal relationship with God so that now, through Jesus, we are children of God. We are in his family. If you're connected to Jesus, you are in God's family in a way that you could not be if you're not connected to Jesus. So Jesus is gonna say to his disciples, his followers, you can approach God as your father. The early church, the first Christians, really picked up on this concept. And so as you move throughout the rest of the New Testament, they make a big deal out of the fact that we can approach God as a father. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. All right, this word Abba, it's an Aramaic term that is a, a close and familiar everyday term for one's father. And he says, we now have the spirit of God because of Jesus. We can approach God as our father, our father who is in heaven. So if you think for just a moment 
about what it means to call somebody your father. If you have a good heavenly father, if you have a good heavenly father, excuse me, good earthly father, you can approach that father with a relationship of, of love and, and compassion and, and closeness and nearness, right? And it's a really special word, isn't it? So when I was growing up, uh, like a lot of kids, I got to a certain age where my brothers and I would try to call my dad by his first name. Instead of calling him dad, we would call him Glenn. And he'd be like, hey, don't call me Glenn. Why can't we call you Glenn? Everybody else calls you Glenn. And I remember still to this day, my dad would say, yes, that's exactly the point. Everybody else calls me Glenn. And he would say, there's only three people in the world, you three boys, there's only three people in the world who get to call me dad because there's a connection and a closeness and an intimacy and a relationship between father and child that doesn't exist anywhere else. And what Jesus says is if you know Jesus, if you're one of his followers, you now have that type of connection and closeness with the father. But father is also a term of respect, isn't it? It's a term of reverence. It's not a casual term, but again, in a good father-child relationship, there's an understanding that there's also authority. There's also submission, right? So your kids, if you're a dad, they hopefully call you dad, but uh, they might try to call you by the first name, and that feels a little bit less respectful. Or, or maybe, uh, you know, if you've got teenagers, some of you, uh, you know this pain, they might call you something like bruh, right, as, as they get older. Hey, bruh, right? And you go, no, 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 no. I'm not your bruh, right? I'm your dad. So call me dad. Call me father. Call me daddy. Something that, that it, it, it communicates this closeness, but also respect. Jesus says that's the type of relationship we stand in with God, with relation to God, right? Our father, he says, who is in heaven. He is close to us, but he is also enthroned in heaven. And so we approach God, not first and foremost saying, what can I get from you? But I want to remember who you are. You are my father who is close to me, but you're seated on your throne in heaven. You're up there and I'm down here. This is reminiscent of Ecclesiastes chapter five, in which Solomon says, don't be rash. Do not be rash with your mouth or hasty in your heart to bring up a matter before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. He's up there, you're down here, therefore let your words be few. This is very similar to what Jesus had just said. You don't just babble in the presence of God. You don't dance around or do magic rituals or say magic words to try to get God's attention. You don't make lots of noise, but you can approach God quietly and directly. He's in heaven. You're on earth. So there's familiarity and there's also respect. There's closeness, but there's also reverence. Uh, not, not too long ago, I read uh, about like some protocols and rules for if you ever were to meet a member of the British royal family. I've never met one. I don't know if you have. Maybe you will. Just in case, I'm going to share this with you in case you ever bump into a member of the royal family. Uh, a, few, a few basic rules. You're not supposed to initiate the conversation. So if you see King Charles, you're not supposed to shout out to him, hey, Charles, right? You're supposed to wait for him to say something to you. 
Okay? You're not supposed to start the conversation by talking about yourself, which is probably a good rule for any conversation, but especially with the king of England. You're not supposed to start saying, hey, let me tell you about me. You're supposed to wait for him to ask. There's certain topics that are off limits because of the reverence and respect that you, you owe the, the king of England, right? So you don't talk about money or sex or politics or religion with the, the monarch. You make sure you get the title right, right? There's, there's respect and reverence. Why? Because he's royalty and you're you, right? And so uh, you approach the person with reverence. Now, here's the beauty of what Jesus does, is he says, we approach God with reverence, but because Jesus has come to draw us near again to God, we can initiate the conversation. We can approach our Father in boldness and confidence to walk into his throne room without fear, because Jesus came to draw us near but we do approach with reverence and respect. So he says, you relate to God as your father, and he goes on. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, I'm approaching you as a father whose name I want to hallow. Now, hallow is not a word we use a whole lot. I don't know, you know, show of hands, how many of you have used the word hallow in the last week in ordinary conversation? Probably nobody. Uh, A lot of us are like, what does that mean? Right? I grew up thinking, what does that word mean? Is it related to Halloween somehow? Uh, it actually is, believe it or not. If you go back, Halloween, originally it's All Hallows' Eve or All Saints' Day. What is a saint? A saint is somebody that some people think is especially holy, especially righteous, especially pure, set apart, greater than ordinary people. So you have All Hallows' Eve, which was originally to celebrate people who were, who were somehow special, holy, set apart, Right? To hallow something is to acknowledge that something or someone as special, set apart, more righteous than me, more holy. And so Jesus says we approach God as our Father who is in heaven. We have familiarity, we have respect, and we say, God, what I want to do is live in such a way that the world around me sees your glory, your goodness, your righteousness, the respect that you are due and the love that you have. In other words, I want your name, God, to be hallowed, to be made, to be shown to be holy in my life. Now, to be clear, God's name is already holy. God's name is already holy, right? In in the ancient world, somebody's name had the idea of their reputation, their values, how they're thought of. God's name is already holy. We know that. We know that there are angels around the throne of God, that all that they do, we saw this in Revelation, you see it in Isaiah 6, all that they do, day and night, never ceasing, is they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God is already holy, whether or not I say he's holy. But Jesus says, when I come before God, my Father, in prayer, I want to say, God, I want my life as your child, as the child of my Father, I want my life to demonstrate your holiness, to hallow your name, to make God's reputation greater than my own. So that first and foremost, I don't come and say, God, make me great, do good things for me, do all this for me. I come and say, God, I want to make you great. I want my actions, my words, my attitude, my life to demonstrate your love, your kindness, your compassion, and your mercy. And so he says, hallowed be your name. This might be like if your kids uh, or mine are, are kind of going crazy somewhere, right? They're just, you're at a restaurant, they're, they're making a lot of noise, they're tearing the place apart, and you might look at them and you say, we don't act like that because we are 
Mortons or we are Smiths, right? And so when you act that way, that reflects on me. So I would like you to act and live in a way that reflects positively on our name, on our family name. When you act out of line, biblically speaking, that's called profaning. The opposite of hallowing God's name is profaning God's name. Think about the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't profane it. Don't make what is holy something common. That can happen if we use God's name kind of as a a swear word or a curse word, certainly. But it's also broader than that. It can mean that I, as a follower of Jesus or a follower of God, as a child of God, to profane his name, I might live in a way that is inconsistent with God's values. So instead of coming in prayer and saying, God, I want to hallow your name, I live my life in a way that doesn't demonstrate the, the righteousness and the love of God. So this might be, I wear my God loves you t-shirt, but then I go into a store and I verbally abuse the cashier. That would be profaning God's name. I am acting one way while proclaiming that I am a child of God. Or I go he- from here, from church, and I'm in my church clothes, and I have the Jesus loves you bumper sticker on my car, but I don't tip the server. Right? And so there's a disconnect between what I proclaim about the generosity of God and what I live out. That's actually profaning the name of God. That's why some of you right now, you're, you're thinking, that's why I don't wear those shirts or have those bumper stickers. Right? You're missing the point. Right? The point is that all of us are called to make God's name holy. To, to shine a light on the fact that God is righteous and great and wonderful and loving. And all powerful. And so Jesus says, when we pray, begin with this. You relate to God as your Father in heaven. And you say, God, before I ask you for what I need, what I want, what I think will fix my life, I'm going to say, God, use my life to honor you. God, as I pray, draw me close to you. Help me understand your values. Help me understand your righteousness so my life can reflect that. That will place context now around the types of things that I ask for and the types of things that I pray for. So we relate to God as Father. But then Jesus is going to go on. He's going to say we also submit to God as our king. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's break that down for just a minute. He says we submit to God now as our king. So we honor him as our father, closeness and reverence, but we also bow the knee before him as king. When Jesus says your kingdom come, this is what's called an active imperative verb. If you don't remember your grammar very well, imperative just means it's a command. Uh, It is active voice. It's not passive voice. So in essence, Jesus says, come your kingdom. He's commanding the kingdom to come. He says, when we pray, we essentially come before God and we say, God, bring it. Bring your kingdom. Make it come. And there's a future element to this. What Jesus is saying is that as we pray, we look around at the world and and we've got requests, right? There's a disconnect between the way the world is now and the way the world should be. So maybe there's a disconnect. So Jesus says, here's what you do. Before you begin requesting, God, fix this, make this better, do this. He says, what I want you to say is your kingdom come. That we acknowledge we are looking ahead to the day when God's kingdom will come to earth and the world will be, once again, 
like it should be. And so we have this future orientation as well to our prayers that we say, God, I'm going to ask for certain petitions. But before I do that, I want you to know I'm longing for, I'm looking for, I'm waiting for your kingdom. And I trust you that one day, as we saw in Revelation, heaven will come to earth. There will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more sickness or death or Satan or sin. And so in the meanwhile, God, I anticipate that. And I say, God, bring that day soon because I know that when that day comes, everything will be made right. Your kingdom, God, I want your kingdom to come. This is why the last uh, words really in the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says to John, I'm coming quickly. What does John say? He says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom. That's what we long for. That's what we want. We're longing for this day when God will reign. And so Jesus says, I want you to remember that and look ahead to that as you pray. That there is a day coming, Paul describes it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ to the first fruits, then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he hands over, this is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has brought to an end all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign, that is Jesus must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be eliminated is death. So here's what Paul says. He says, look around the world. There are competing visions of kingdoms, right? There's competing kingdoms. So you've got some people that think if if the world was this way, it would be better. If the world was this way, it would be better. We have competing political visions, moral visions, religious visions. There are even competing nations that literally fight against one another, like in Ukraine or Sudan or Ethiopia, even today. So there's all these competing visions of kingdom. And Paul here says there's a day coming when Jesus will bring them all to an end. All the other kingdoms will come to an end. The United States of America and Russia and Ukraine and Sudan and Ethiopia and your political vision and my political vision and your moral vision and my moral vision, all of it will come to an end. It will be replaced by the kingdom of Jesus. And then Jesus will hand all of this over to God the Father. And it says, finally, he has put everything in subjection under his feet. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. That the day is coming, Jesus will conquer every competing kingdom and then hand it all over to the Father to reign with Jesus at his right hand. And so Jesus here in the Lord's Prayer, he says, I want you as you pray to fix your eyes on that day. And say, God, your kingdom is best, so your kingdom come. As I said, we live in a world with competing visions of the kingdom. How many of us have thought, if I were in charge, the world would be better? I have a friend who says, the world is ruled by idiots. That's that's one of his favorite phrases. The idea is, it would be better if, if my vision was in charge. Several years ago, uh, there was a journalist who answered uh, or asked some kids all the way from elementary school up to high school, what would you do if you were president, if you were in charge, if you could make the country a better place? Some of their answers, I'll share some of them. There's a kid named Huck, age six. He says, I'd find out if aliens exist so we could steal their technology and I'd make baseball season year round. There's another kid named Emerson, three years old. I would make everyone eat chocolate ice cream for breakfast. That's his kingdom vision. 
There's this girl, Nora, 13 years old. This one's a little bit more uh, specific and serious. I would get rid of the electoral college so it's an actual democracy and make voting more accessible for everyone. That's the child who will actually be president one day. A kid named Joe, his vision is in contrast to Nora's, age six. He says, I would lay there and eat chips. That's his whole vision <laughs> of what would make for a wonderful world, right? Henrik, age five, I would make sure there were no bullies. Mackenzie, age seven, I would make sure all the homeless people and pets have homes to live in. Molly, I would say that there should be no more wars ever. And then there's a high school kid, Zach, that has a very specific set of visions. He says, number one, mandatory teeth brushing. Number two, zombie preparedness. Number three, fun time travel. Number four, free ponies for all Americans. That's his vision. All right, so some funny, some serious, but they all have their ideas of here's what would make the world better. I'll bet you have your idea of that also. Here's what would make things better. All right, if I were in charge at the office, that guy wouldn't be there, and the office would be a better place. If I were in charge of the church, uh, things would be different, right? We'd sing different songs. We'd hear different things, right? We'd do different things. If I were in charge, if I were in charge of this city, I could fix the traffic on game day weekend. If I were in charge of my kid's carpool line, I could make it better if I were in charge, right? And so there are competing kingdoms in the world. There are even competing kingdoms in our hearts. And so that's why Jesus says, before you start making requests, you bow your knee to the kingdom of God. You say, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, I know one day your kingdom is coming. And so God, what I pray is that the values and the priorities of your kingdom would reign in my heart right now. That I would submit my will to your will, my vision to your vision, my kingdom to your kingdom. Because we represent the kingdom of God. And in a very real but mysterious way through the power of the Spirit, we are the people of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, we pray, God, in my life, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our church, let your will be done before I ask for my will. Because we are kingdom people. Revelation 1.6 says he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. What did priests do? They helped people to approach God. It says that, that's us. We help people to see God, to approach God, to worship God. He's made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion. That is the authority, the kingdom, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, I want my kingdom to give way to your kingdom. Peter puts it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a chosen people set apart for God's possession to glorify him to demonstrate the values and the priorities of his kingdom, his love, his grace, his righteousness, his purity. And so Jesus, again, he says, you approach God in prayer and you say, God, I want to know you before I ask for things of you. And I want to bow my knee to you before I tell you about all the things that I want. Before I ask God to fix my bank account, my job, my marriage, 
my kids, my health, my friends, my city, my nation. I say, God, I believe that one day you will fix it all. And in the meanwhile, what I want is to do your will. So help me know your will. And then our petitions become informed by the reality of God's values rather than driven by our own selfish desires. And so Jesus says, acknowledge who God is before you ask for what you need. Acknowledge he's our father. Acknowledge he's our king. What I want to do for the next few minutes then is for us to take an opportunity to acknowledge God both as our father and our king. If you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ, this father-child relationship, it begins by trusting in Jesus, that Jesus came to earth and died and rose again so that we can know the Father. That's why when Jesus' disciples said, hey, show us the way, show us the way to the Father, Jesus says what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Believing in Jesus is the starting point for having this relationship with the Father. And if you do know Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, the question then for us to ask in our, in our prayer lives is simply this. Do I begin by saying, I want to know you, God, more than I actually want the things I can extract from you? I want to walk with you and make your name holy, even if that means I don't get what I want or what I think I need in this moment. Do I value relationship? more than request. So Jesus would say, let's, let's pray that God will help us to draw near to him and then secondly, to submit to him. To say, where are the areas of my life, of my heart, where I think my vision, my kingdom vision is better than God's? Am I willing to, to let go of that and trust God's kingdom vision? Say, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to take just a couple of moments in the quietness of our hearts. I know last week we spent some time in corporate prayer. This morning I want to spend some time just at your chair in the quietness of your heart. You say, God, help me draw near to you and reveal to me those areas right now in this moment where I have a competing vision of the world and allow me to submit that to your will. So draw near and submit. Let's take a couple of minutes and do that, and then I'll close us in prayer in just a moment.
I want to close us with a, a prayer from this book. It's called A Way to Pray by Matthew Henry. It's a great resource if you're just looking for a way to put some words around your prayers. And he's got a section at the back where he expands upon the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and uh, I want to close by reading some of this prayer uh, that fits what we've talked about this morning of drawing near to God and submitting to his kingdom. So this will be our closing prayer. Pray, pray in your heart with me as I, as I read. Our Father in heaven, let the kingdom of your grace be manifest more and more throughout our land and in the places where we live. Let your word have free course and be glorified. Let your gracious kingdom permeate all our lives so that our bodies can be proper temples of the Holy Spirit. Let no iniquity have dominion over us. Rule in us by your truth. As people of the truth, enable us to always hear Christ's voice. Let us not only call him Lord, Lord, but also do the things he says. Let the love of Christ control and constrain us. Let our eyes be fixed on fearing him so that we do not sin. Let your glorious kingdom come quickly. Inspire us to believe it is coming soon. Move us to look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, to come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Keep us hoping that he will appear soon to inspire our joy. Teach us to love the prospect of his appearing. Let us look forward constantly to the arrival of the day of God. Make us ready so we can lift up our heads with joy, knowing that our redemption is drawing near. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.